The words pandemic fatigue are an understatement for most of us. Anxiety, confusion, and fear about the virus and the surge in variants of COVID-19 have exhausted Alaskans just as it has for people across the world as we approach two years of fighting the disease. The latest variant surge, known as Omicron, spreads faster than the Delta variant but appears to be less lethal. How are Alaska's healthcare facilities and workers coping, and what do they see on the horizon? We'll discuss the Omicron update today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. With Omicron spreading fast, many Alaskans will test positive for COVID-19. If this happens to you, what should you do? Head home and isolate as best as you can away from others. Let your close contacts know they may have been exposed so they can quarantine. Get plenty of rest and stay hydrated. Call your doctor. Treatments may be available, especially if you are at high risk for severe illness. If your symptoms worsen, seek medical help. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Most of us are tired of worrying about COVID-19. For healthcare workers, the level of fatigue is even more severe, and the emotional turmoil around the wide-ranging reactions that healthcare professionals have had to grapple with, from protests about wearing masks and getting vaccinated, to confusion about treatments, it's taking a huge toll. This is being exacerbated by the Omicron variant's fast spread, affecting already thin healthcare worker ranks. Case numbers have been higher in recent days than at any time in the pandemic. What is the current outlook for the next few weeks, and how are the women and men of medicine dealing with it all? Here to help us better understand the challenges is Jared Cosen. Jared is the president and CEO of the State Hospital and Nursing Home Association. Also with us today is Alaska's chief medical officer, Dr. Ann Zink, and state epidemiologist, Dr. Joe McLaughlin. Both are with the State Department of Health and Social Services. Welcome, all of you. Also, later in the program, we'll hear from Kim Kluckman with the Alaska Nursing Association. You can also join our conversation, Alaskans. Do you have questions about the Omicron variant or questions about vaccine protection against emerging variants or which masks are the best to use right now? Give us a call statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's one 800 Four seven eight eight two five five. If you are in Anchorage, the local number is five five zero eight four two two five five zero eight four two two. You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. Jared, start us off here. You have a daily statewide call with hospital staff. What are you hearing in those calls about staffing challenges right now? Thanks, Lori. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, we, you know, we're two years in now and I use the word we because we really are a pretty tight unit at this point. And I mean both us at the hospitals and nursing homes and healthcare facilities, and then of course our state partners, Dr. Zink, Dr. McLaughlin and the health team. Um, and we all meet every single morning uh, at about 9.30 and we have a stand-up meeting and discuss what are, what are the latest pressures? How do the last 24 hours look? How do the next 24 hours look? And the main concern on everyone's mind right now are uh, staff calling out due to illness. And we know this is impacting us, 
impacting everybody, uh, but we are definitely in the thick of it right now, and uh, we're all watching the clock to see when is this thing going to pass because it's getting pretty intense. And is the is the concern uh, across the board for hospitals and nursing homes, or is it primarily uh, concerns over staffing shortages in hospitals? Uh, both, both any healthcare facility at this point, and I'd say any industry at this point, um, we're everybody is uh, seemingly getting sick or exposed, and then in the healthcare environment, generally speaking, you know those staff members are going to be quarantined or pulled off the line. And so that has a direct impact on our ability to provide care. So, you know, where we're watching it from, we're watching both our hospitals and nursing homes because both environments can be vulnerable to this. And we are seeing uh, high volumes of call-outs right now. Are the facilities reporting that they have supply shortages, either for protective equipment or other medical supplies right now? And generally, no. Um, you know, I've said this before, I, I can't believe it. You know, the Delta surge was essentially yesterday on our timeline, if we really think about it. I think all of us kind of have put it behind us as we're all fatigued and, and looking past this, but it really was uh, essentially yesterday. We are just past it. And so we're, you know, now you know, absorbing another escalation, another set of stressful circumstances. And the point I'm trying to make is we're pretty battle tested. So, Believe it or not, we're managing. Uh, now, the supplies uh, generally, uh, there, there are a few shortages uh, that we're hearing reports on. There are some issues with the therapies that are available, and Dr. Zink would be uh, better at speaking to that. But now, generally, this is kind of like before. Um, different set of circumstances, of course, same challenge. Uh, making it through a really intense situation where we're seeing rising admissions and reduced capacity to serve those admissions. But Uh, We do have the experience, and hopefully this situation is going to be over a lot faster. That's what we're all hoping for. During the peak of the Delta variant surge, hospitalizations were at 250. What are you seeing right now for numbers in this surge? Sure. Right now, uh, we're right around, I'd say, the 100 mark, which means if you were to count all the people in a hospital who are admitted there uh, with a covid 19 diagnosis. Uh, right now, they're around 100 or 103. And as you just said, back in Delta during our peak, we were over 250. So if you just look at that metric, that doesn't feel so bad. Uh, this is different because during Delta, uh, we did not, we, we were fuller, we had higher levels of staffing. Uh, we were better equipped uh, from a staffing standpoint to actually meet the challenge head on. Now with this, like other industries are experiencing, a lot of people are getting sick. Thankfully, it's less severe. Thankfully, with people being vaccinated and boosted, the severity uh, drops considerably. So it's a means of basically pulling people out of the lineup. And the less people you have to be inside a facility providing care uh, directly shrinks your capacity to provide care. So we could have all the hospital beds in the world right now but we have so few staff that we can only administer or staff uh, a select number of them. Mm-hmm. And so when you kind of think of it that way, 103 admissions may not feel so bad if this was Delta, but with how many staff we have out every single day, the crunch and the intensity feels a lot like Delta. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and today we're discussing what you need to know about the Omicron variant.
surge of the COVID-19 pandemic. On the line today, we have Jared Kosen, President and CEO of the State Hospital and Nursing Home Association, Alaska's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink, State Epidemiologist, Dr. Joe McLaughlin, are all with us. And later on in the program, we'll be joined by Kim Kluckman with the Alaska Nursing Association. You can join our conversation if you have questions or comments. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. And you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Dr. Zink, uh, Jared was just talking about um, this uh, Omicron variant being less severe, especially for people who are vaccinated. But the Associated Press reported this morning that deaths are climbing and that this is a shocking number. They are reporting that 50 to 300,000 more Americans could die by mid-March from Omicron. Do you think this projection is accurate? And when you look at this current surge, the third in the pandemic, what most concerns you for the next few weeks here in Alaska? Yeah, no, thank you so much for having us on and for being here. You know, we have been through a lot in the past couple of years, and we are in a new phase in the pandemic in many ways. We do see that the Omicron variant looks to be causing less severe disease. Um, and we're seeing that both in the rate of cases compared to the rate of hospitalization, but we're also seeing it in some other subdata. When you look at people who are hospitalized nationally, it looks like a lot of them have Delta, don't actually have the Omicron, uh, and very few people, if any, are really needing ventilators or additional support uh, from an ICU perspective from that end. So we do know that when we have a very transmissible disease like we have with Omicron, we will see many people who will not feel well and will be sick as uh, unfortunately Jared and his teams are experiencing and many uh, across the state are experiencing and being out and that's causing some significant shortages in the workforce. But we are seeing both from the way that this virus has changed, but also in the way that many people are either vaccinated or previously were infected, have some degree of protection against severe disease, uh, has been uh, very useful at helping to minimize that severe disease. It's part of the reason we keep uh, encouraging boosters. We do see better protection if someone is completely up to date on their vaccination. And so we want to emphasize that tool and additional tools like masking and distancing can also be helpful. But compared to the Delta, this uh, virus, this change, it is markedly different than what we saw with Delta. I don't know, Dr. McLaughlin, anything else you'd add in that space? You know, I think that is that really summarizes it well, Dr. Zink. Um, Lori, as you mentioned, we are seeing increased uh, hospitalizations as well as deaths, but compared to the numbers of cases that we're seeing with Omicron, uh, in looking back at the Delta wave, for example, proportionately, we saw a lot higher proportion portion of cases that wound up uh, resulting in severe disease than we're seeing with Omicron. So that's that's definitely the good news. And we're also seeing a number of reports coming out uh, in the medical literature as well that are really documenting this and demonstrating the lower severity overall. Well, Dr. McLaughlin, sticking with you for a moment here, there's been reporting that the Omicron variant doesn't, as we've been discussing, doesn't cause the same level of severe illness as Delta, but some people are still getting very ill. What are you learning about the differences in the variants? And are you seeing sort of like hybrids between Delta and Omicron or or potentially new variants on arising? Great. Thank you for that question. 
So with respect to um, just severity overall and what's different about Omicron compared to, let's just take comparison with Delta. We know that Delta was the most transmissible variant until Omicron came along. Once Omicron came along, that def what the current CDC estimate is that it's about three times more transmissible than Delta. So it's much, much more transmissible. Um, and we already talked about the fact that Omicron um, is associated with less severity of disease overall. So that's that's really good. Uh, a couple other things that we're seeing that are different with Omicron is the incubation period, which is the time from infection to the time from symptom onset is shorter. Uh, it's probably on the order of maybe two to three days on average. So about a day or so shorter than Delta. And remember, that the incubation period was shorter uh, with Delta than it had been with uh, previous variants. Um, you know, I think in terms of hybrid viruses, that certainly is a possibility. I'm sure people have heard of, you know, some of these hybrid viruses like uh, Deltacron, I think is the name that has been given. Um, we're just not seeing high numbers of those. We know that um, Omicron right now is by far and away the dominant vari variant that is circulating globally. And we expect that to be the case uh, for uh, the weeks ahead. Um, and there are other variants that are emerging as well. Um, one out of West Africa that recently emerged, but none of the none of the other variants that we've seen sort of get documented have been able to outcompete Omicron. And what's known about why the variant uh, is less severe than Delta? Is it because of the way people's immune systems have affected what they're passing on? Or what can you tell us about, is there hope on the horizon that maybe variants will get, will continue to be um, less uh, lethal? Right. I can start with that. That's a, it's a great question. Early on, the reason why uh, people were so hesitant of saying that Omicron is intrinsically less virulent than Delta or other variants uh, is because there was such a high level of prior immunity in the population, especially in South Africa. We know that South Africa had experienced a really uh, severe Delta surge where a lot of people got infected. Um, one of the things, one of the other things that I didn't mention about Omicron that's different is its ability to evade prior immunity, either from uh, prior infection with a different variant or from vaccination. And so we were seeing this big surge of Omicron in South Africa, and we didn't know if the lower virulence, the lower hospitalization and death rates that we were seeing in, in South Africa was due just to the fact that so many of the people were getting a repeat infection, and so the severity was lower. But I think with the, the new data that we have uh, that's continuing to emerge globally, I think it is becoming more and more clear that Omicron is intrinsically less virulent than other strains. And the reasons for that are probably multifold. I know that many of the listeners know that Omicron has a lot of mutations that make it different than other uh, viruses uh, or other variants. And some of those mutations likely contribute to the lower virulence. I don't know, Dr. Pink, if there's anything you would add to that. Yeah, no, I appreciate all that, uh, Dr. McLaughlin. I think the other things I would add is clinically, we're just seeing a really different picture with this. 
So with Delta, we saw people could initially get sick, have, you know, fever, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, and then start to improve. And then really between days like seven and 10, some people started to get markedly worse as the body started to have a lot more inflammation. And that was what was causing people to be so sick and to be hospitalized for extended periods of time. We're seeing less of that kind of biphasic nature with Omicron. We're seeing people just, it, it honestly looks more like the flu. It's a, it's a course kind of more upfront um, where people aren't feeling well for a bit of time. It does look like it replicates much more in the upper airways than the lower airways. And this is thought to add to the severity component as well. So just as Dr. McLaughlin mentioned, there's previous immunity from past infection, there's vaccination, there's those who are boosted. We have a much better understanding of COVID now. We also have a whole bunch of treatments that we didn't have available before, but this virus has really changed for being able to replicate in the upper airways and not causing kind of this biphasic and this huge inflammatory response that puts such a burden on our hospitals and where we saw so many people becoming so ill uh, and, and, and sick for a long time. So uh, from, a, from an overall mortality perspective, you know, any sort of virus is rapidly spreading. There's always that concern, uh, but this does look very different than Delta. We had a, a question from a listener in Anchorage. Elaine wanted to know whether the Omicron variant is more transmissible when you're outdoors than previous variants have been. Is there much known about that? Sure. This is Joe McLaughlin. I can start with that. Um, so we know that the Omicron variant is more transmissible than the other variants. So that's, that's just, we know that it's more transmissible. In terms of the likelihood of actually getting infected with the virus, it depends on a number of factors. It depends on whether you're indoors versus outdoors. We know that if you're indoors, there's less air movement in general. Uh, and especially if there's not good ventilation indoors or good air filtration, the likelihood of actually getting infected um, indoors is higher than outdoors. And then other factors like you know, masking, social distancing, um, things like that, those are other factors that can contribute to the likelihood of transmission. Is it possible to get infected while outdoors with somebody? Yes, it's always been possible. Um, but the likelihood of getting infected outdoors uh, versus indoors is much lower. All right. Let's go to the phones for just a moment. Nathan is in Soldatna. Hello. Hello. Did you have a question? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, my question is related to schools. I know that uh, school districts have become a lot less likely to pull the trigger on mitigation med uh, methods as we've gotten further and further into the pandemic. Um, what specifically, in the context of Omicron and everything else, do school districts need to be doing right now um, to make sure that they're able to do school safely? All right. Thank you, yeah. Nathan, for the question. Dr. Zink. Yeah, it's a great question, Nathan. Thank you uh, so much. You know, the overall mission is to just make sure that people are as healthy and well as they can be uh, and to use the tools that we can to keep people healthy and well. We know that school districts have an obligation and a real mission to make sure that kids are learning and a pause for a few days or a few weeks is one thing, but we are now going on to year two. And so we see different communities doing different things to make sure that they're able to carry out their mission of educating kids and minimizing the impact of COVID as well as other diseases uh, on their population. So some communities do a lot to try to keep it out. Some communities have done a lot around vaccination. Uh, some have a test to stay program. 
some are using masking. So I think it's challenging to say here are the two or three things that must be done uh, in every school district because it looks really different across the state. But the same tools that apply to all of us also apply with schools to try to minimize the impact. The good thing is that kids tend to do very well if they're exposed to COVID-19. Most recover very quickly. And if you look at, you know, particularly younger kids, you're much more likely to get hospitalized from RSV than you are for COVID. Uh, that being said, we just have a lot of COVID spreading uh, around as well. So the same tools, increasing vaccination, distancing, masking, ventilation, uh, testing when people are symptomatic can all reduce the amount of COVID spreading in a community, but our schools are a part of the larger community as a whole. And so the more we can uh, make sure that our kids are healthy and well, uh, including with COVID, the, the healthier and more well they're going to be able to be in school. Just like Dr. Just like J um, Jared had talked about the hospitals being strained by staff, the main challenge we're seeing right now with schools is the schools being challenged with staff and students being in just because of the number of kids uh, who aren't feeling well and are being out for a short period of time, not that they're getting super sick. I know, Dr. McLaughlin? Let's um, let's get Jared back in here for a moment. Jared, you said at least one hospital had to stop using some of its beds because it simply didn't have enough staff. How close are facilities to going back to crisis standards of care, or are some of them there now? Yeah, so as of this morning, we had, I would say, well over 250 healthcare workers out across the state. Now, it sounds like a big number. It is a big number. Um, but it really depends, you know, healthcare is really driven by the specific circumstances on the ground. So that number really hits some facilities more than others. Um, we've heard, you know, some of the behavioral health facilities, uh, you know, staffing is really challenging. They're kind of taking maneuvers to um, respond, and, and such maneuvers are, you know, in a behavioral health setting, it's reducing admissions. You know, in a general acute care hospital, it's starting to limit procedures and delay surgeries. Um, we're starting to see those maneuvers be considered on, I'd say, a daily basis, uh, at least in one or two facilities. But this thing moves so quickly. So it's, it's constantly evolving. So, you know, one day, you know, when I talked to you guys last week about that, uh, or even the other day, you know, the set of circumstances on the ground showed that we had one facility um, that was limiting admissions for behavioral health, and then uh, the next day that is stabilized, and we have a different facility who's, you know, looking at maneuvers around procedures and things like that. So I, I don't think, you know, crisis standards of care are really a situation of the moment, and it's going to be resource-driven, and it's really hard to predict. You know, it's something that turns on and off. It's not something where, as I've said many times, the healthcare system doesn't just break and it's broken. Um, it's, you know, it happens in kind of rapid spurts. So right now, as of today, the, the general feeling is we're managing. You know, we know how to handle this. But I think the question we're all wondering is, is this going to continue to slip out of control? Are we going to have a lot more staff call out? Or is the Omicron variant going to burn out? Is it going to flame out quickly? And we're kind of at the peak right now. Um, this is the same feeling we had during Delta. When are we going to hit that ceiling? You know, is it going to be a uh, when are we going to start riding down uh, so that we can have some predictability in the way we manage? But it's impossible to predict for crisis standards of care. But as of this moment, you know, the healthcare system is, is fairly stable despite all the call outs. The question is, are they going to get worse? And can hospitals, uh, if they need to use that crisis standards of care, can they just 
uh, do that right now if they need to, or is there something that has to be put in place to allow that to happen again? And then please just give us a, a quick reminder of what that means if they're yeah. using crisis standards. Yeah. Uh, you know, with this pandemic, it's amazing the concepts that we've all, all started to talk about and understand um, at such a high level. I mean, these used to be such nuanced issues uh, before the pandemic, but essentially, Crisis standards of care, think about it. If there is a crisis, your ability to provide care, the standard of that care is going to change because you're either going to have limited resources uh, to deploy, you're going to have limited people in the field uh, that can provide care. So it can look like virtually anything. You know, a certain unit might be down. Imagine there's a big power outage or imagine there's a a major accident. You know, all the facilities are full. It's really how we respond in what would be a disaster or a catastrophic situation. So the answer to your question is yes. It can happen at any point in time. You know, facilities are going to respond operationally based on the needs on the ground. So if that means we have a lot of staff out and all of a sudden there is a large event, you know, such as um, a, a plane crash or something big like that, then the standard's going to shift immediately. You don't have to do paperwork or anything like that. Thankfully for the pandemic, we've worked so closely with our state partners that um, from a framework standpoint, the state has all of its kind of positions in place. They are formally recognizing that the standard of care can change and can slip into crisis mode. So that is in place. It has been in place since Delta. Um, But operationally, we can do it at any point in time. All right. Thank you for that, Jared. Dr. Zink, the state is changing how it's reporting case numbers and other indicators for the pandemic. There's less emphasis on the daily case count, for instance, and the testing positivity rate is no longer easily accessible on the, da- on the dashboard. Explain what prompted these changes. Yeah, no, thanks for the question, Lori. Um, we continue to try to evolve as this pandemic evolves and make sure that the Alaskan public has the information and resources that it needs. We're still continuing to get cases in on a daily basis. We have been for months now sharing the case counts three days a week, and we're continuing to do that with no plans and changing, particularly during the surge. We've been emphasizing for some time now that it's more important to look at trends than day-to-day variation because there may be a backlog of cases that came through. A healthcare facility may be doing a lot of testing and doesn't report to us the next day. There could be duplicates that we have to deduplicate. So there can be day-to-day variability and what that looks like. Uh, And that's why those trends overall are super important. We are also trying to share what are some of the more useful tools in thinking about this pandemic as well as other respiratory uh, viruses as a whole. So we have moved our weekly reporting to include syndromic surveillance, how many people are showing up to the emergency departments with COVID-like illness or influenza-like illness to kind of understand that impact on hospitals uh, as it's not just about cases, but it's also how well the systems are, are overall functioning. And we also have in there how many people are being hospitalized. And percent positivity has always been a limited number. We know we have not been able to identify all the cases since the very beginning. There have been asymptomatic people, people who choose not to get tested, and more and more people are choosing to get tested at at home testing or other tests that we're not able to get sent into the state for, for visibility on what that looks like. 
And there's a huge reporting, reporting burden for a lot of our smaller communities and facilities to report in all of the negatives to us as well. And so that can skew the percent positivity. So we just want to be as honest and transparent as we can with the data that we have. So you can still see how many tests are being reported into us and you can get a sense of you know what percentage of those are looking like they're positive. But if people aren't reporting in those negatives, then that is going to be kind of a skewed number overall. So we, we want to make sure that we're honest and transparent about the data we do have. So uh, a, a question about home tests, uh, and I'm going to combine a, a couple of email concerns here. One from Meg Hills, who says, since Wednesday is just around the corner, I'm wondering if free tests will be sent out by the post office to Alaskans. She says, I heard briefly at some point that Alaska would have a different method of delivery due to widely variable temperatures below zero in some circumstances. And this combines with a question that we had from someone in Homer who wondered the same thing. Are there concerns about uh, temperature variability with at-home tests, and can that affect their effectiveness? It's a great question. You know, there are hundreds of tests at this point, and some of them are impacted by temperature. Some are not impacted by temperature. So the White House has rolled out, and it's live now, where you can order at-home tests that are directly delivered uh, to you. Uh, depending on the type of test as well as location, you just want to make sure that you read the instruction. Most of them turn color or change if they got too cold. So you'll know if it, it wouldn't be accurate because it has frozen in that space. We have shared with the federal government just the fact that many of us have, you know, um, mailboxes that are outside or the cold temperature component could be a limitation and want to make sure that Alaskans have access to the same testing and what ways we can support to get those in communities. And then we've seen many schools, local communities, municipalities invest in and help to try to get at home testing or uh, just really easily accessible testing across the state. So we want to make sure every Alaskan has access to that testing and are working with limitations. So just take a look at the instructions on the box. Uh, most of the time they will tell you, you know, if it, like, for example, the Buy Next Now cards turn blue if they get cold. It will tell you on there um, if you do order it, but you can now order them directly from the federal government. All right. Well, thank you so much to our guests today. We're talking about what you need to know about the Omicron variant with uh, Alaska's chief medical officer, Dr. Ann Zink, state epidemiologist Dr. Joe McLaughlin. And joining us after the break that we're about to take it will be Kim Kluckman, who is with the Alaska Nursing Association. Jared Kosen, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and we will keep this conversation going as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing what you need to know about the Omicron, 
Omicron variant of COVID-19. On the line with us are Alaska's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink, and the State Epidemiologist, Dr. Joe McLaughlin. We're joined now by Kim Kluckman. Kim is with the Alaska Nurses Association. Kim is an RN and serves as treasurer for the ANA. Kim, welcome. Give us an idea of what association members are dealing with right now in terms of helping patients get care for the virus, but also in terms of burnout from the extreme need, the long working hours, and personal anxiety about catching the disease themselves. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yes, um, all those things. Um, we have um, our, we're still re- recovering from the Delta surge. We do have less ICU-specific admissions um, with uh, COVID, um, but our nurses are still uh, tired and um, just doing the best they can day-to-day, picking up extra shifts whenever they can and trying to help the community any way they can. Kim, how much of the fatigue and burnout is from people who lash out at medical staff over masks or getting vaccinated? There have been reports that nurses can't ask about any vaccine, such as tetanus, in some emergency rooms because they risk hearing an angry outburst about shots or even threats of violence. Have you heard of or experienced anything like this? I know that um, when uh, the Delta surge was happening, I haven't been um, talking with my ED nurses as much uh, with this Omicron surge, but that it was uh, something that uh, caused people to get very angry at the nurses um, for just asking questions about uh, their immunizations. That's correct. And I think, uh, Dr. Zink, you had mentioned something along those lines. Can you fill in any information there about what nurses are dealing with in emergency rooms? I know you're still seeing patients. Yeah, no, I am. And man, the nurses uh, have just been amazing throughout this pandemic and continuing to just show so much care and compassion. As just mentioned, picking up extra shifts, being creative uh, in the ways that they're helping to cover for each other as people are out right now um, and making sure that the patient's needs and health are always put first. So it's just a, it's a great honor to work side by side with them in the emergency department. Um, you know, people are tired of COVID. Uh, I'm tired of COVID. Uh, the nurses are tired of COVID. Patients are tired of COVID. And unfortunately, um, it has become a bit more tribal. It's become more kind of us and them. And I think we just really need to keep emphasizing that we are all human. We all want to be well. We all want our neighbors and loved ones to be well. We want freedoms. We want our businesses to be open. Um, And I think some of that frustration uh, can roll over in the emergency department and and other places. It's not new to emergency departments. Uh, We have seen violence in the workplace uh, well prior to the pandemic. Um, but I think just kind of the tone and frustration uh, has has mounted as people have just become exhausted uh, throughout this pandemic. So I'm hoping that we can continue to find the commonalities and the strengths and the similarities that we all have and continuing to treat each other, particularly, you know, those frontline nurses and, and healthcare professionals um, with the care and compassion that they're trying to treat uh, each patient with as well. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide if you'd like to join our conversation today. 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. We're going to go back to the phones for a moment. Joe is in Anchorage. Hello. Hi. Um, I understand uh, Omicron, however you say it, is uh, less virulent than Delta was. Uh, how is, is that also true for people that are immunocompromised? 
And then I have one or two quick questions about specific uh, immunocompromised situations. Dr. McLaughlin? Sure, I can start with that. Thank you, Joe, for the question. Um, we know that people who are immunocompromised are intrinsically at increased risk for severe disease with any of the SARS-CoV-2 variants. That would include Omicron. Um, as we discussed earlier in the show, we are seeing hospitalizations with om Omicron and we are seeing deaths as well. Um, they're much less common than Delta, but they do occur. And so anybody who is immunocompromised, uh, you know, definitely recommend they consult with their healthcare provider and get the best preventive um, options available to them, such as vaccination, getting boosted when they're eligible, and then also uh, there are um, monoclonal, there's a monoclonal antibody called Evishield that is available for people with uh, immunocompromised conditions, certain, certain conditions that will provide additional protection for them. I don't know, Dr. Zink, if there's anything you would add. Yes, please, Dr. Yeah, Zinkin. Are there shortages of the monoclonal treatments uh, for Omicron? And what do you know about the status for those supplies? You know, great question, Lori, and great question, Joe. Regarding immunocompromised status, just as Joe mentioned, you know, people who are immunocompromised are at higher risk in general. However, as we talked about before, Omicron has changed as a virus. So even those who are immunocompromised are less likely to be hospitalized from Omicron than they are from Delta, regardless of their immunocompromised status or their age. So um, there's kind of multiple variables to be thinking about in, in that space. Just as Joe, uh, you know, had mentioned, Dr. McLaughlin had mentioned, um, there is this new one type of monoclonal. It's not to be used for treatment. It's not to be used post-exposure. It's basically to uh, be given every six months to those who are very high risk uh, because they are not going to mount a good response uh, to a COVID-19 vaccine. And so it's called Evashield. It's available at a lot of immunologist uh, uh, um, clinics as well as oncology clinics. That one we are not seeing huge shortages of uh, in the state right now, which has been fantastic to see. So if you are immunocompromised, talk to your healthcare provider if that one's right for you. Regarding other monoclonals, there are three different monoclonals that can be used after you've been exposed or you test positive for COVID-19. And the kind of common names are Citropamab, uh, Regeneron, as well as Bam-Eddy. Unfortunately, with Omicron, the Regeneron and Bambini don't look like they work against Omicron, but the Citropamab still looks like it works well against Omicron. That one is in more limited supply. We get two weak allocations from the federal government for that one, and we try to get it out as quickly and widely as possible across the state. However, we also have two new oral therapeutics, Paxlovid and Molnupirnavir, which are also available across the state. Uh, and there are people who meet criteria for one or not the other or all three. Uh, and any one of those three uh, can be helpful. And then remdesivir, which had previously been used really in the outpatient setting, excuse me, in the inpatient setting only. There was a good study that just came out that showed decreased rates of hospitalization with remdesivir given as an infusion over three days in the outpatient. So we really have kind of four major treatments that are out now. Uh, two of them are, one of them is a monoclonal, two of them are oral, and then one is remdesivir, which is an antiviral. And uh, they have different limitations across the state, depending on kind of where you're at and depending on your overall health condition. So um, it's really important you talk to your healthcare provider uh, about treatments, because not only are there conservative treatments, uh, making sure not something else is going on, but there are more COVID specific treatments than ever before. All right. Incredibly detailed answer uh, and thoughtful as always. Uh, if you took one, drill down into one immunocompromised situation, let's say PMR, 
Is it the low-dose steroids that are making you more vulnerable to the COVID, or is it the inflammation itself, or both? Yeah, so great question. It's really kind of those steroids that are suppressing your immune system is the major thing. For Evashield, uh, you meet criteria for Evashield if you're taking more than 20 milligrams of prednisone or an equivalent daily. So pretty high doses of steroids uh, to, to really have that significant immunocompromised state. But check out the NIH guidelines on Evashield because they lay out pretty clearly the immunocompromised conditions that meet criteria for it. All right. Thank you, Joe, uh, and good luck with the uh, questions that you have. I, I hope that uh, you came away with a lot better information. I want to get Kim Kluckman back in here with the uh, Alaska Nurses Associ- Nursing Association. Kim, how have the contract medical personnel that came to Alaska helped, and what are the challenges in having people plug in during an emergency where it seems there would be little to no time for any sort of training for them. How has that gone? Oh, yes. Um, so the nurses that have been uh, contracted from um, the federal government, uh, they're, um, as far as I know, are finishing up their assignments soon. Um, but they have been wonderful, and they are doing the best they can. The ones that I've been working side-by-side side with have been working five 12-hour shifts every week that they've been up here. And um, I can't imagine how um, exhausted they could be from that, but they're, um, they are just filling in so many gaps and, um, and it's, it's the buffer that we definitely need. And we need to work on getting our nurses that live in Alaska and work with Alaska's population. We need to get that um, to a higher level. Dr. Zink, how many of the contract staff are still in the state, and do you think there will be more coming to help, or are there not enough medical professionals right now to meet the extra need both here and in the lower 48? You know, great question, Lori. We have been very fortunate to be working with the hospitals on a daily basis on how they're doing with staffing, understanding limitations, where are those gaps, both with long-term care facilities as well as hospitals. The contracts uh, have been extended and we continue to work with the hospitals to make sure they have the supplies and resources they need. How many we currently have in the state changes on a day-to-by-day basis. So I'd have to ping the team to see how many today. Um, Because what we've also seen, as just as previously mentioned, uh, many of the hospitals getting those staffing levels up in Alaska with Alaska nurses is critical. So we've had some hospitals that have been able to actually hire some of those contract staff nurses full-time and keeping them on board which has been great. Uh, And then we've also been working with the hospital association on increasing staffing, particularly CNAs, to help support long-term care facilities and additional staff um, so that we have the resources that we need within the state, um, nurses as well as other uh, professionals that are needed for care. So we are trying to make sure that we have long-term solutions while this short-term gap continues to be used. All right, let's go back to the phones for a moment. Hannah is in Kenai and has a question about pediatric cases. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, I have a two-year-old and an 11-month-old, and I've been hearing a lot of um, conflicting news stories about Omicron being worse for little kids, like under five, um, or it being milder, like for everybody else. Um, so I was just wondering what you're seeing in Alaska. Dr. McLaughlin, do you want to take that? Sure, I'm happy to. Thank you so much for the question. Um, so, You know, what we found not only here in Alaska, but nationally is that, um, of course, Omicron is really taking off. So the numbers are much higher than we saw with the Delta wave. 
And that's across all of the age groups. Um, and as the numbers increase, just general numbers of cases, we also see a rise in the numbers of hospitalizations. <clears throat> and that has been true with pediatric, uh, um, with the pediatric population as well as the adult population. Um, as we had mentioned, proportionally, proportional to the number of cases that are occurring, we're seeing less hospitalization than we were with Delta, but just because we're seeing so many more cases, that's why we're seeing this big rise in hospitalizations. Um, overall, the, as Dr. Zink had mentioned, <clears throat> with respect to pediatric cases um, and hospitalizations, we know that uh, they are the lowest among all age groups in terms of hospitalizations um, and the lowest by a large margin with respect to deaths as well. Um, and so the upshot is that uh, Omicron hospitaliz cases, hospitalizations, and now we're starting to see a little bit of an increase in deaths across age, all age groups in the United States are increasing with Omicron. Uh, the lower severity is also true for uh, kids. All right, we need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Alaska's chief medical officer and epidemiologist and with uh, Kim Kluckman, who is with the Alaska Nursing Association, as Talk of Alaska continues. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Public media is designed for and made possible by the communities it serves. Monies generated through estate and deferred gifts enable public radio to provide our listeners, you, with the level of programming excellence you've come to expect. It may also reduce income and estate taxes. Consult your financial advisor or contact your public radio station to learn more. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We were talking about cases and concerns over very young children. And I wanted to follow up there. Kids that are um, newborn to five years old are the last group waiting for vaccine eligibility. It's been a long wait for these parents. Is there hope that they'll have a vaccine soon? Dr. Zink, Dr. McLaughlin, who wants to take that? Yeah, I'd be happy to start. I appreciate that. I, one other comment that I just wanted to make on that last, you know, question. I know that many parents with kids less than five, you know, are kind of anxiously awaiting that. You know, looking at the limited data that we have now with Omicron, but with COVID as a whole, you know, your child is much more likely to be hospitalized with RSV uh, or influenza than COVID at kind of these most youngest age groups. Uh, so particularly those less than one, and even uh, more likely to be hospitalized from RSV all the way up to age five compared to COVID. So I think it's important to put but particularly for these younger age groups, it into a larger perspective of other respiratory pathogens uh, that can be very challenging to children and why we want to make sure kids greater than six months old uh, have had their flu vaccine because we do have a vaccine against that. Um, we are continuing to follow the data uh, as well as information. Uh, currently, we do not have a vaccine available, as mentioned, to those less than five years of age um, and want to just make sure that they're safe and efficacious from a federal perspective. So we'll continue to follow that. And once we have more information uh, from the federal government, uh, we will share what is there and available. The biggest thing I would emphasize is really talking to your healthcare provider and your pediatrician about what makes sense for your child and the health of your child. There's a lot of questions, particularly in this age group, when uh, they are so minimally impacted by COVID. We want to make sure that you've got the, the resources you have working with your provider to be able to address uh, any and all questions you may have. 
All right. Thank you for that. I, I want to go to an email question now. Joan asks, has Omicron changed what is considered a close contact? She writes, previously, I believe it was within six feet for more than 20 minutes. Is it less time now because Omicron is more contagious? And and I would add to that, um, there's a lot of confusion around which masks are best to use to protect against spreading or getting the Omicron variant. Help us understand which masks are best right now. And are there differing guidelines, as Joan asked, for what is considered close contact with this variant? Sure, Lori, I can start with that. This is Joe McLaughlin and Joan, thank you for the question. So um, the, the answer to your first question is no, the, the criteria for close uh, contact is still six feet, 15 minutes. Um, there has been some discussion nationally about whether or not that should change with Omicron, but at this point that is still the case. With respect to masks, how to choose a mask, um, CDC fortunately has come out with what I think are some very helpful updated uh, guidance um, points that came out last week. And I'll just go through a few of them uh, from the the new national guidance document. So number one is that masks and respirators are effective at reducing transmission of COVID um, SARS-CoV-2 when worn consistently and correctly. Number two, CDC recommends wearing the most protective mask that you can that fits well and that you will wear consistently. And that's a really important point because some masks and respirators, while they offer higher levels of protection than others, they may be harder to wear uh, or tolerate consistently. And having that consistent, um, well-fitting mask on when you're in close proximity to others, especially in indoor spaces, is absolutely key. Um, Wearing a highly protective mask or respirator may be most important for certain higher risk situations or by some people who are at increased risk for more severe disease. And in the new guidance, they really um, underscore the fact that any well-fitting mask is better than no mask at all in terms of helping to decrease the risk of transmission. And then the other point I want to make from the CDC guidance that just came out last week is they they really underscore that respirators have not been tested for broad use in children, because I know there have been a lot of questions about, well, should children start wearing respirators? And then you also have to think about uh, the tolerability uh, as well as the consistency of uh, being able to wear those respirators. So I think the, the guidance are helpful and really encourage folks to take a look at them. So, Dr. McLaughlin, I, I want to uh, drill down a bit here. Dr. Richard Wayne, the chair of the state's medical board, told Sitka school board members recently that masking was, quote, nonsense. He says the masks being used don't work, especially cloth masks. And he claimed that you supported his statements, Dr. McLaughlin, and others who are against wearing masks say that unless people are taught how to properly put them on and only use N95s, they're useless. Now, you were just saying that any mask is better than none. So how, help us understand uh, this is confusing information coming out of the, the state medical board's um, uh, chairman. Uh, help clarify what people need to know about masking right now. Sure, I can start with that and maybe I'll have Dr. Zink add to it. But in terms of the general recommendation that we've always provided, myself included, with respect to masks and face coverings, is they're not perfect, but they are a helpful tool in in helping decrease the risk of transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. 
whether it's that's from Omicron or any of the other variants that we've seen so far. And so the masking guidance that uh, CDC put out last week um, really kind of underscores that fact. And maybe, Anne, I'll see if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I think I appreciate that, Dr. McLaughlin. You know, we continue to follow this data has continued to evolve over time. Science continues to change and this virus continues to change and sharing that information out there. I just want to also emphasize, you know, uh, state government is large. Uh, we are not the medical board. We're not the pharmacy board. Uh, sometimes we joke that really the only authority we have is to Zoom. Um, and so there's a lot of different components within state government that do different actions. And so I think it's important to realize kind of the limitations of each of the different uh, sections within, within DHSS and within the state government and the federal government as a whole. Um, but really, Dr. McLaughlin and I, uh, we're part of the public health team here to share information, uh, which is different from medical board, pharmacy board, and other boards. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Uh, Kim Kluckman with the Alaska Nurses Association. Sorry, I had that title wrong earlier. What do you want Alaskans to do right now to help take the pressure off of hospitals and staff? What would be most helpful? Well, I would like um, them to just continue to be uh, diligent in their um, own symptom management. If you're sick, please stay home. Um also wearing masks and social distancing and all the things that we've been doing all along. Just continue to stay resilient. We're just like Dr. Zink had said, we're all sick of uh, COVID and, um, but we'll get through this together and the nurses are there for you no matter what. All right. Thank you so much, Kim, for the work you do. And uh, by email, Doug writes from Anchorage, just want to give a huge thank you to Dr. McLaughlin and Dr. Zink and all their colleagues, that includes you, Kim, for their work. Much appreciate these outreach efforts to keep the public informed with the facts. We're going to go back to the phones really quick here. Hannah is in Soldatna. Hannah is gone. Dr. Zink, uh, returning to questions that we have here, we get calls, emails, and I've even gotten a few handwritten letters um, saying, uh, you need to give us all the information on other types of treatments and from also uh, notes from people who claim vaccines are harmful and people have died from taking them or medical professionals are not using certain treatments because it doesn't make money for big pharma. I'm sure you've heard these statements. How do you engage with people to help them understand where they should and should not go for factual vetted medical information? Yeah, I know. I appreciate those questions, Lori. You know, our job within DHSS is to promote the health and well-being of Alaskans. But each individual person has different risk factors and different components. And so really talking to your healthcare provider is absolutely critical. I would also challenge people that a lot of times the national narrative is put on top of local or state narrative uh, and aren't the case. We have been promoting the importance of physical health and mental health since the very beginning of this pandemic from going out for runs. The initial part, you know, we never said stay at home. We said, you know, watch out for each other, stay away from each other while we, we were getting masks and tools and additional resources that are here. Uh, and so I think just using caution to taking that national narrative and, and applying it down to the local component and the state component. The best, the best information for your health is going to be talking to your healthcare provider. And then when we're looking at information to share with the public, people are welcome to come to our Science Echo. We do it every Wednesday from 12 until 1. You have a whole variety of experts that take questions directly from the public. We also review what is going on in the literature, COVID and non-COVID related, uh, every Thursday for healthcare providers. 
But one of the things we do is we look at, you know, where is the consensus of the data fitting at this time? Where do the big studies that are randomized controlled studies, what do the meta-analysis look like? What does the overall preponderance of evidence look like rather than this one study or that one study? Those one studies can be very useful because that may be where things are trending. But really our job uh, as scientists, as healthcare providers is to look at the overall body of evidence and to share that. And then as a healthcare provider, I try to take that overall body of evidence and apply it to that individual physician that I see, or the individual patient that I see before me. And that's really the importance of having that individual conversation with your healthcare provider. And that's what we've been promoting since day one. We have an email question from Dan who says, Dr. Zink says hospitalization risk now is higher for RSV versus Omicron for the very young. He asks, is any work being done to get a vaccine for RSV? It's been a threat in Western Alaska for years. A great question. We actually have an RSV team that's been working on this for a long time. There is actually a monoclonal for at-risk, high-risk children uh, that we uh, have uh, for really high-risk kiddos to try to minimize the risk of hospitalization for RSV. And one of the great things about the whole world looking at and understanding these respiratory pathogens more, as well as vaccines more, is that there are now a couple different RSV vaccines that are being trialed, and we hope to have something moving forward. So while we don't have an RSV-specific vaccine, we do have an RSV monoclonal antibody for the highest risk individuals and are hoping to see more progress on that moving forward. And many of the same things that work with COVID work for RSV, so that distancing, hand washing uh, can really make it difference and potentially even uh, using a mask if kids are sick or if other family members are sick in that space. So uh, hoping to to be able to minimize the impact of RSV on kids, particularly in Western Alaska, as mentioned. All right. We only have about 30 seconds left, but are there the vaccination rates in Alaska? Are there specific age groups or other demographic groups that have especially low rates where you'd like to see improvement? You know, I see every single person as uh, someone who needs to make that decision for themselves in conversation with their healthcare, uh, you know, professional and what that looks like. Every person who chooses to promote their health and to protect themselves is one more person that is going to prevent or minimize their chance of becoming severely ill. So we continue to just try to reach out to people where they're at uh, and continue to make sure that particularly those who are highest risk, like our long-term care facilities and those who are older, really uh, understand the significant benefit uh, of vaccines to minimize their chance of becoming seriously ill. All right. Thank you so much, as always, to Alaska's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink to state epidemiologist Dr. Joe McLaughlin. And earlier in the program, we heard from Jared Cosen, the president and CEO of the State Hospital and Nursing Home Association. And also with us was Kim Kluckman, who is with the Alaska Nurses Association. Thanks so much to our guests for their clarity and good information. And thanks to you for calling in today during Talk of Alaska. Our engineer is Tobin Shelby. Our producer is Adeline Baxter. And on the phones and social media today, Kavitha George helped us out. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.